Good morning, brothers and sisters. So there is a topic I'd wanted to give a homily on, specifically for probably the last five years, but it was one of those things you wanted to wait till the right time, and it wasn't the biggest issue in the world, so I held off until I thought I was ready, and I think today is a good day to do it for two reasons. Obviously, we veil the statues today in anticipation of Holy Week beginning next week, and yesterday was the solemnity of the Annunciation of the Blessed Virgin Mary, right? When the angel Gabriel was sent to her to let her know that she had been chosen to be the mother of God, and she said yes, and she conceived Christ in her womb. Now, it is kind of weird to celebrate that solemnity during Lent, especially when we're about to celebrate Christ's death and resurrection, but that's the way the liturgical year works out sometimes. But I think, of course, it's providential. So this topic that I want to discuss is veiling, what we call chapel veils, or why women traditionally in the Catholic Church have worn veils in the church or certainly at Mass. Where it came from originally, why the church had it as a tradition for so long, and why it's not intrinsically necessary, meaning why the church said you don't have to do it anymore. So veiling started in ancient Israel. It was a very old practice. Women, married women, whenever they would go out in public, would wear veils. Now the reason they would wear veils is because it was a Jewish Orthodox tradition that when a woman got married, she would cut her hair off. That may sound weird. If you don't know the theology of a woman's hair, you didn't know women's hair has a theology, but it does. In the Old Testament, the word of God says that a woman's hair is her glory. A woman's hair is her glory. The longer the hair, the better it is, basically. The more glory she has. And the reason that the long hair of a woman is called the glory by the word of God is because, as the Bible tells us, it covers up her nakedness. It keeps her chaste and pure. Now, before Adam and Eve sinned, they were naked without shame, but once sin entered the world, they had to start covering themselves in order to maintain chastity and purity. And it became a tradition among the Israelites that the long hair of a woman was a symbol of her purity, of her holiness, of her chastity. Because like clothing, I'm not saying you, they didn't have to wear clothing, they still wore clothing, but the long hair was just a symbol of that chastity. However, when a Jewish woman got married, she now had permission to reveal her body to her husband. So to symbolize that, she cut her hair short. But because nobody else had that honor, she would put on a veil to symbolize long hair every time she would go in public. Now, what you might not know is Orthodox Jewish women still do this. Most of them actually shave their heads when they get married, regardless of age. And you could say, well, I've met many Orthodox women who were married, and they had hair. No, they didn't. They were wearing wigs. Every Orthodox woman wears a wig because they didn't, don't keep the tradition of wearing a veil anymore because the veil merely represented hair. I know it sounds weird, but again, it's tradition, and so they just continue to do it. They still cut their hair, and they put on false hair like a veil to follow their tradition and the theological symbolism that Israel had continued to practice for thousands of years now. 
In fact, what you might not know is religious sisters, nuns, do the same thing. When they get married to Christ, when they take vows, they cut their hair off. That's an ancient Jewish practice. Why do you think the nuns do it? And then they put on a veil and they wear that all the time. Not just in church or in public, but even among their sisters in the convent. So this tradition is ancient. Now, there is a reason why Catholic women don't have to cut their hair short when they get married anymore. So many of the old laws and practices and traditions were removed by Christ and by the early, well, the first pope and bishops. They just didn't need to continue. However, the tradition of veiling in church was maintained by the the fathers of the church, by the apostles themselves. In fact, St. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians. He says that a woman should never come come into the church without a veil on. Why? Because in part, veiling symbolizes, again, theologically, chastity and purity, modesty. And women, uniquely among human nature, represent the church, because the church is the body, the bride of Christ. And so since you brides represent the bride of Christ, and the bride of Christ must be chaste and modest, you wear this veil, or traditionally you wore this veil as a symbol, as a sign, not only to yourselves, but to the rest of us, even us men. Because we men are members of the bride of Christ, members of the body. And so we must be chaste in body and mind and soul as well. So it was a sacramental, you could say, that women continued this tradition. St. Paul clearly states it in 1 Corinthians. And for the last 2,000 years, it was done. Now at the Second Vatican Council, the church fathers said, we don't have to do it anymore. It's no longer a requirement. You can do it if you want, you don't have to. Why? It's important to realize, just because something is a tradition doesn't mean it's necessary. Like, I can celebrate Mass without these vestments on. I can do that. I'm not supposed to, but I can. Why? These are sacramentals. They're not sacraments. They are signs, external signs, that point to something deeper, like this color purple that I'm wearing, right? It's just a color. Why does it matter what color I'm wearing at Mass? Because it tells you what kind of a Mass it is. This is a penitential mass in which we reflect upon, obviously during this season, Lent in preparation for Holy Week. We wear purple also during Advent, again, penitential, in order to prepare ourselves for the coming of Christ at Christmas. So purple represents that theologically. So I wear it to remind you and to remind me when we celebrate mass during these seasons. But the color changes depending on the theological significance. So these externals, They're not intrinsically necessary. That's why the church doesn't have a law about it anymore, because it's not necessary. But there is a reason why the church for almost 2,000 years maintained that tradition. Again, because of what it symbolizes and that we as Catholics know sacramentals, external signs that point to things are necessary. They are good. They're necessary in a sense, in a general sense for us. We require this in our own relationships. If you're married and your spouse never says the words, I love you, 
even if they do love you. I'm sorry, you want to hear it, right? You want, you want those, their vocal cords to vibrate in those specific tones in that way to create those words because it means something to you. But that's a sacramental in the sense that it's just an external sign. They can say they love you all day long. If they don't act on it, then those words are empty. So why do we want the words if they're acting on it? Because we're human. Because that's the way God made us. These externals, not intrinsically necessary, are still good and important to us. God knows us, knows it's that way because he created us this way. So that's why the church maintained this tradition of veiling because of what it symbolizes. Women, you, you are a type of the church because the church is the bride of Christ. Every bride represents the church, especially every Catholic bride. And so to symbolize the church's own desire for modesty, for chastity, and for submission to Christ, women wore veils. That's why whenever you see a picture or a statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary, you can't see her now because she's veiled, she's got a veil on. One, she was a good Jewish woman, and it was their tradition to wear veils, so she did. But even when she has appeared over the last 2,000 years in mystical ways to people, she's always veiled, always. Why? Because of the theological significance. Mary isn't just a type of the church. Mary, the Blessed Virgin, is the archetype of the church. An archetype is much greater than just a type. Sorry, the rest of you ladies, you're just types. But Mary, she is the perfect type. She perfectly models the church. That's why she was perfectly chaste. She was perfectly humble, and she was perfectly submissive and obedient to Christ in all things. In all things. That's why she said yes to the will of God. Because God had authority over her, and she submitted to him in everything. And that veil was a symbol of that obedience and that submission and that humility, that chastity that she had. And it's precisely those virtues that drew God to her, that led him to want her to be the mother of his son. But one of the things a lot of even Catholic women who wear veils don't know is what Paul specifically mentions in 1 Corinthians as to why Catholic women at church should wear veils. Why he, he required it. Again, it's not an official teaching of the church. Just because it's in the scriptures that Paul required it at that time doesn't mean it still has to be this day. The church has the authority to add or subtract these non-essentials. But Paul says that the reason God wants you women to wear veils in church is to be a sign of your submission to your husbands, their authority over you. And you're like, Father, I was following you up to that point. I was like, okay, I could wear a veil. Yeah, yeah, that's not a problem. I could do that. Then you lost me. Sorry. Sorry, really? That's the, that's the real symbolism of the veil? According to the Bible, it is. I'm sorry, the Bible is the word of God, whether it's Paul or not. Paul is not some misogynist who's like, yeah, ladies, submit to us men. That's why you wear veils. Paul is speaking on behalf of God through the Holy Spirit. The truth of what Paul is saying remains, whether you wear a veil or not. 
But that's the rub, isn't it? Because whether you wear a veil to symbolize it, the fact is God expects you wives, you mothers, to be submissive to your husbands in all things as to God himself. As to God himself. Think about that for a minute. Ladies, God wants you, and children, for your fathers, right? God wants you to look at your spouses or your fathers as if they are God. As if they are God. And humbly submit and obey them in that way. That is a bitter pill to swallow. Now, this is not David Miller's teachings. It's not Paul's opinion. This is the will of God. If you claim to follow God, claim to be a Christian, or a Jew for that matter, it's obvious. Both the Old and the New Testament are 100% clear on this point. Why is it so difficult, that concept, that idea of submission? I'll tell you, ladies, honestly, it's not difficult for men. Now, you would say, obviously, because I have to submit to them. No. In fact, men are far more submissive than women by nature. And if you think about it for just a moment, you have to agree with me. Because 99% of husbands do what? Honey, what do you want? Where do you want to eat? What can I do for you? Just tell me what's wrong. I'll fix it. They're always asking for some commander direction so that they can be obedient to you and make you happy. And the thing that frustrates most husbands is when you don't tell them what you want because then they don't know what to do. They want you to tell them what to do most of the time. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. Men are actually naturally submissive. We are. It's, it's part of our genetic makeup, how God designed us. Even Adam was this way before sin. So it's interesting. The reason Paul, nowhere in the New Testament, tells men that they have to learn to be submissive to their wives, he actually does say it in one place. He says, husbands and wives be submissive to one another. Paul does actually say that. But the reason he never emphasizes that fact is because men typically, typically do it. And for us men, submission is actually not much of a virtue because it's genetic. It's designed in us to be more submissive, generally speaking. That's why we don't grow or don't obtain many graces by doing it. In fact, one of the failings of men in this world is we become too submissive. That's actually a failing. One of the problems, obviously, in our culture Men have become too effeminate. It's one thing to be a submissive. It's another thing not to take the authority that God has given you and use it wisely and well, despite the consequences. Did you know that was the root of Adam's sin? Adam's sin was actually not eating of the fruit, because he didn't do that first, did he? Eve ate the fruit first, but it's still called Adam's sin. But he sinned first. You know what he sinned in? He submitted to Eve and let her eat the fruit. He didn't even try to stop her. And he was there the whole time. Go back and read the story. He was there with her when she was talking with the serpent. He could have said something. He could have spoken up. He could have resisted her impulse to eat of the fruit. But he stood there and he submitted and he watched. And then when she gave him the fruit, he said, I will submit to you. And he ate it. Adam's sin was that he submitted in the wrong way to Eve. 
He put Eve ahead of God. That's the sin of man, males. That's where we fail most, mostly. It's because we're so submissive that it's a problem at times. Do you know where we as men also struggle? And it has to do with a type of submission in a sense. We struggle to sacrifice ourselves for those in our life that are guilty. As men, we're very justice-oriented. Anyone who's submissive by nature is justice-oriented. They like the order of things and hierarchies. And if you did something wrong, why should I be punished for your crimes? You should get punished, right? Kind of simple, kind of black and white. It's just the law of nature. We're actually made this way by God. It's actually why one of the reasons why we're good at making difficult decisions is because we don't feel as deeply connected with other humans. We just don't. Men are kind of shallow emotionally. It's true, we are. I admit it, most of you know that. We have emotions, but most of the time we can just ignore them. Or we can turn them off when they're in the way. It's one of the things that ladies you hate about us, is that you, know, you could have this argument with your spouse and just have it all, and it hasn't been resolved yet, and yet it's midnight, and the husband is like, honey, I gotta go to bed, I gotta get up at five in the morning and go to work, and so he just rolls over and goes to sleep. And you're like, what? You're not gonna sleep for at least a few hours if you go to sleep at all that night, because you can't just shut off your emotions. We men, because we're so shallow emotionally, we can do that. And ladies, honestly, one of the things that irritates you about your husbands in this regard is that you wish you could. You do. Be honest. You wish you could just turn them off. But you don't have that ability. Actually, you're not supposed to have it. God made you that way for a reason. Now, you should be able to control them, but you're not supposed to be able to turn them off. One of the reasons God gave women this depth of emotion, this depth of, of compassion towards others that, that bonds them on a deeper level than any male can experience is because it makes them awesome mothers. That's what children need. Children need somebody who understands them, who's compassionate. The average father doesn't understand his children. I'm not saying the average mother understands them perfectly, but much better than the average father. It's precisely because of her vulnerability, her depth of emotion, her sensitivity that she can do this. If she weren't that sensitive, if she weren't, wasn't affected by those around her with their feelings, their fears and hopes and dreams, then she would not be able to help them in their difficulties. Growing up is hard. One of the beautiful things about the sensitivity of a woman is she can see a child struggling and know exactly what they're thinking and feeling. A man is like, I don't know what to do. She's like, change his diaper. Okay, you know, I mean, <laughs> you have to teach a guy these things. Women, it's intuitive. You just feel it. And that's necessary for children. It's necessary. But it's terrible in a leader. Did you know that? Being overly compassionate is a horrible trait in a leader. This is one of the reasons why you never want a woman as a military general. Why? War is a game of chess. And sometimes you have to sacrifice the pawns. 
in order to win the game. When you have a woman as a general, she loves her troops. She loves those under her. Every woman loves those under her. And yet she may have to heartlessly sacrifice a battalion of soldiers to win the war. She can't go around feeling bad about that. She's got to move on to the next task. But she can't turn off that emotion either. Not naturally. A man can. He can do the hard thing and not feel bad about it because it was the right thing. Anyone with that degree of authority needs to be heartless to some degree. I'm not saying without a heart, but at least not as moved by the plight of others. Men are just better at that genetically, personality-wise. Not all men, but generally speaking. That's why God made men the heads of his homes. That is why, first and foremost, the male represents God. First, let me explain this. The, the female represents God too. In Genesis, let us make them in our image and likeness, male and female, let us make them. So ladies, you're in the image of God too. But why is the male always first in the image? Adam was created first, men are the heads of their homes. Why does God do this? A male priest is the head of this body of St. Dorothy's in Lincolnton. Why did Jesus, the Father and the Spirit, create this design for the world? It's actually quite simple when you learn it. You see, the most important thing to God, the most important thing is love. Love is the most important thing. It's that which binds us. God himself is love. There is nothing greater for him. But the only way love can exist is if there is life. Without life, there's no love. But the only way life can exist if there is a rightly ordered reality or nature. So, let me explain it this way. Do you think gravity cares about your feelings? Do you think it takes your intention into consideration when it kills you? You know, if you accidentally fall off a cliff, gravity says, okay, okay, I won't pull you down because you didn't know I was there. No, gravity doesn't care. Gravity is a law of reality. It creates order in the universe. Without it, the universe would not exist and there would be no life. Since there's no life, there's no love. Love's the goal. Order is heartless. It doesn't care about any of these things. But it has to be. Order is a simple necessity of justice and goodness. Impersonal at first. That's what order is. It's impersonal. It doesn't care that you're a person. It kills animals and humans just the same. But order is not the goal. Order is merely the structure in which life and therefore love can exist. If order doesn't come first, if order is not followed, there is no life. Like if you don't obey the law of gravity, you won't be able to love your spouse or your children because it will kill you, right? Now you have no love because you went against an order. Order always precedes love even though love is more important. That's why God created Adam first, because Adam was made to establish order in the world. That's masculine nature, that's maleness. 
God gave Adam this command, till and keep the garden, keep order in my garden. But Adam wasn't the last thing God created. He created Eve. Why did he wait to create Eve? Is because, again, the rule is true. You save the best for last. That's what it is. Ladies, you represent the greatness of God, not in regards to his power and authority, even though that comes first, but in regards to his love and his compassion. To do that, he actually had to make you weaker than Adam in certain areas. Another statement people don't like to hear is that the Bible says that women, guess what? You are the weaker of the sexes. Again, this isn't David Miller's opinion. This is the word of God. But that actually makes you better than us, ladies. It does. Because you symbolize something far greater. It is, in fact, your weakness and your vulnerabilities in regards to motion and compassion, sensitivity, that helps you exemplify and reveal God's love in the world in a way we men can't do. Men can reveal God's authority in the world well, better than women can. Women can reveal God's love in the world better than men can. But submission to a rightly ordered reality always precedes love. And when we seek to circumvent law and order in order to try to create love, we'd actually destroy it because there is no life without order. This teaching has always been maintained in ancient Israel and in the 2,000 year history of the church. That's why Our Lady is always veiled to symbolize this. That's why Catholic women wore veils all this time because St. Paul clearly states in 1 Corinthians, this veil symbolizes and represents your husband's authority over you and your submission to him because that's the way the church is supposed to act towards the Lord. So ladies, think about it. If you were actually married to Jesus Christ and he asked you to do something, you would do it, wouldn't you? Well, I mean, it's the Lord. Even if it was something you didn't like, you'd be like, I have to trust him, it's Jesus. He's gotta be right. That's what our Lord is asking of you. Treat your husband as if he's me. And you say, but he's not Jesus. I mean, he doesn't always get it right. I can't always trust him because he's not always trustworthy. And I agree with you, ladies. We're not always trustworthy. Fair enough. But that's not the point. The Lord says, trust me. I tell you to submit. I tell you to obey him. I will protect you. I will reward you. I'm the one you should trust, not that man you're married to. You see, this is an issue between your relationship in Christ, not your relationship with your husband. That's what it comes down to. And I, I don't want to preach this homily just picking on women. Trust me, I was thinking about picking on the rest of us men next week anyway. But, uh, but this is an important theological point that having been removed from culture and from the world, especially even to some degree from our faith, has only caused harm, not only in society, but in the family. God has given us a specific design and order for the relationships in the family. And when we do not submit to that ordering that God has given us, then disorder destroys life. And when it destroys life, it destroys love. And you wonder why there's no love in your home. Now, again, you don't have to wear a veil. Church says so, and so you don't have to. 
If it was up to me, I'd bring the tradition back because I think it's an important and to some degree necessary for a reminder of what's lacking in our hearts and in our families. But pray about it, think about it. At the very least, I've heard women say, honestly, it just helps me pray. They're like blinders on a horse. You don't get distracted at mass. You just put it on and you're fixated. There are natural benefits to it. But ultimately, the real reason that we should even consider that is what it represents theologically. Because it's, it's Christ I follow. It's Christ I'm submitting to ultimately. It's the word of God. Jesus Christ himself, as it's been given to us, that I must submit to. And if that means I have to submit to an earthly person because God tells me to, then I do it not because of that person, but because of God's word. I submit to the bishop, not because he's smarter than me, although he probably is, not because he's holier than me, he definitely is, but simply because he's got more authority than me. That's it. And Jesus says to do it. So whether I agree with Bishop Jugas or not, or the Pope or not, is irrelevant to God. Did you know that? God doesn't care whether you and I agree. Just like parents should not care whether your children agree with your decision. Because you have authority. And when there's a disagreement between a husband and a wife, somebody needs veto power. Someone needs veto power. Somebody has to have the last say. And God has told you who it is. So whether we like it or not, it's the Lord that we follow not trends of an age, not our own personal views or opinions, and certainly not our feelings. It's the truth, because Jesus says the truth will set you free. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.